The archmage was silent for a moment, staring out into the night, which was cold but bright, with the light of Lunatari in the stars. Solinari, Wanning, was nothing but a silver scratch across the sky. More important, to Raceland's eyes, was the moon he alone could see. Lunatari, the black moon, was full and round, a hole of darkness amid the stars. Raceland took a step nearer the guard. Casting his hood back slightly from his face, he let the light of the red moon strike his eyes. The guard, startled, involuntarily stepped backward, but his strict training as a knight of Salamnia made him catch himself. Raceland felt the man's body stiffen. He saw the reaction and smiled again. Raising a slender hand, he laid it upon the guard's armored chest. No one is to enter my tent for any reason, the archmage repeated, in a soft, sibilant whisper he knew how to use so effectively. No matter what happens, no one, Lady Chrysania, my brother, you yourself, no one. I, I understand, my lord, Michael stammered. You may hear or see strange things this night, Raceland continued, his eyes holding the guards in their entrancing gaze. Ignore them. Any who enters this tent does so at the risk of his own life. And mine. Y yes lord Michael said, swallowing. A trickle of sweat rolled down his face, though the night air was exceedingly cool for autumn. You are, or were, a knight of Salamnia? Raceland asked abruptly. Michael seemed uncomfortable. His gaze wavered. His mouth opened, but Raceland shook his head. Never mind. You do not have to tell me. Though you have shaved your mustaches, I can tell it by your face. I knew a knight once, you see. Therefore, swear to me, by the code and the measure, that you will do as I ask. I swear by the code and the measure, Michael whispered. The mage nodded, apparently satisfied, and turned to re-enter his tent. Michael, free of those eyes in which he saw only himself reflected, returned to his post, shivering beneath his heavy woolen cloak. At the last moment, however, Raceland paused, his robes rustling softly around him. "'Sir Knight,' he whispered. Michael turned. "'If anyone enters this tent,' the mage said in a gentle, pleasant voice, "'and disturbs my spellcasting, and, if I survive, "'I will expect to find nothing but your corpse upon the ground. "'That is the only excuse I will accept for failure.' "'Yes, my lord,' Michael said, more firmly, though he kept his voice low. "'Est suloras othmithas. My honor is my life.' "'Yes,' Raceland shrugged. "'So it generally ends.' The archmage entered his tent, leaving Michael to stand in the darkness, waiting for the new gods knew what to happen in the tent behind him. He wished his cousin, Garrick, were here to share this strange and forbidding duty. But Garrick was with Caramon. Michael hunched his shoulders deeper into his cloak and looked longingly out into the camp. There were bonfires, warm spiced wine, good fellowship, the sounds of laughter. Here, all was wrapped in thick, red-tinged, starlit darkness. The only sound Michael could hear was the sound of his armor jingling as he began to shake uncontrollably. Crossing the tent floor, Raceland came to a large wooden chest that sat upon the floor beside his bed. Carved with magical runes, the chest was the only one of Raceland's possessions, 
besides the staff of Magus, that the mage allowed no one but himself to touch. Not that any sought to try. Not after the report of one of the guards, who had mistakenly attempted to lift it. Raceland had not said a word. He simply watched as the guard dropped it with a gasp. The chest was bitterly cold to the touch, the guard reported in a shaken voice to his friends around the fire that night. Not only that, but he was overcome by a feeling of horror so great that it was a wonder he didn't go mad. Since that time, only Raceland himself moved it, though how, no one could say. It was always present in his tent, yet no one could ever recall seeing it on any of their pack horses. Lifting the lid of the chest, Raceland calmly studied the contents. The night blue-bound spellbooks, the jars and bottles and pouches of spell components, his own black-bound spellbooks, an assortment of scrolls, and several black robes folded at the bottom. There were no magical rings or pendants, such as might have been found in the possessions of lesser mages. These Raceland scorned as being fit only for weaklings. His gaze passed quickly over all the items, including one slim, well-worn book that might have made the casual observer pause and stare, wondering that such a mundane item was kept with objects of arcane value. The title, written in flamboyant letters to attract the attention of the buyer, was Sleight of Hand Techniques Designed to Amaze and Delight. Below that was written Astound Your Friends, Trick the Gullible. There might have been more, but the rest had been worn away long ago by young, eager, loving hands. Passing over this book that, even now, brought a thin smile of remembrance to the mage's lips, Raceland reached down among his robes, uncovered a small box, and drew it forth. This, too, was guarded by runes carved upon its surface. Muttering magical words to nullify their effects, the mage opened the box reverently. There was only one thing inside— an ornate silver stand. Carefully, Raceland removed the stand and, rising to his feet, carried it to the table he had placed in the center of the tent. Settling himself into a chair, the mage put his hand into one of the secret pockets of his robes and pulled forth a small crystal object. Swirling with colors, it resembled, at first glance, nothing more sinister than a child's marble. Yet, looking at the object closely, one saw that the colors trapped within were alive. They could be seen constantly moving and shifting, as though seeking escape. Raceland placed the marble upon the stand. It looked ludicrous perched there, much too small. And then, suddenly, as always, it was perfectly right. The marble had grown. The stand had shrunk. Perhaps Raceland himself had shrunk. For now the mage felt himself to be the one that appeared ludicrous. It was a common feeling, and he was accustomed to it knowing that the dragon orb, for such was the shimmering, swirling-colored crystal globe, sought always to put its user at a disadvantage. But long ago, no, in time to come, Raceland had mastered the dragon orb. He had learned to control the essence of dragon kind that inhabited it. Relaxing his body, Raceland closed his eyes and gave himself up to his magic. Reaching out, he placed his fingers upon the cold crystal of the dragon orb, and spoke the ancient words, Ast bilak moiparalan, Sir Akflar tantangusar. The chill of the orb began to spread through his fingers, causing his very bones to ache. Gritting his teeth, Raceland repeated the words, Ast bilak moiparalan, Sir Akflar tantangusar. 
The swirling colors within the orb ceased their lazy meandering and began to spin madly. Rayson stared within the dazzling vortex, fighting the dizziness that assailed him, keeping his hands placed firmly upon the orb. Slowly, he whispered the words again. The colors ceased to swirl, and a light glowed in the center. Raceland blinked, then frowned. The light should have been neither black nor white, all colors, yet none, symbolizing the mixture of good and evil and neutrality that bound the essence of the dragons within the orb. Such it had always been, ever since the first time he had looked within the orb and fought for its control. But the light he saw now, though much the same as he had seen before, seemed ringed round by dark shadows. He stared at it closely, coldly banishing any fanciful flights of imagination. His frown deepened. There were shadows hovering about the edges. Shadows of... wings. Out of the light came two hands. Raceland caught hold of them and gasped. The hands pulled him with such strength that, totally unprepared, Raceland nearly lost control. It was only when he felt himself being drawn into the orb by the hands within the shadowy light that he exerted his own force of will and yanked the hands back toward him. What is the meaning of this? Raceland demanded sternly. Why do you challenge me? Long ago I became your master. She calls. She calls and we must obey. Who calls who is more important than I? Raceland asked with a sneer, though his blood suddenly ran colder than the touch of the orb. Our queen, we hear her voice, moving in our dreams, disturbing our sleep. Come, master, we will take you. Come quickly. The queen. Raceland shuddered involuntarily, unable to stop himself. The hands, sensing him weakening, began to draw him in once more. Angrily, Raceland tightened his grip on them and paused to try to sort his thoughts that swirled as madly as the colors within the orb. The queen. Of course, he should have foreseen this. She had entered the world, partially, and now she moved among the evil dragons. Banished from Kren long ago by the sacrifice of the Salamnic Knight, Huma, the dragons, both good and evil, slept in deep and secret places. Leaving the good dragons to sleep on undisturbed, the Dark Queen, Takesis, the five-headed dragon, was awakening the evil dragons rallying them to her cause as she fought to gain control of the world. The dragon orb, though composed of the essences of all dragons, good, evil, and neutral, would, of course, react strongly to the queen's commands, especially as, for the present, its evil side was predominant, enhanced by the nature of its master. Are those shadows I see the wings of dragons, or shadows of my own soul? Raceland wondered, staring into the orb. He did not have leisure for reflection, however. All of these thoughts flitted through his mind so rapidly that between the drawing of one breath and the release of it, the archmage saw his grave danger. Let him lose control for an instant, and Tachesis would claim him. No, my queen, he murmured, keeping a tight grip upon the hands within the orb. No, it will not be as easy as this. To the orb he spoke softly but firmly. I am your master still. I was the one who rescued you from Sylvanesti and Lorak, the mad elven king. I was the one who carried you safely from the blood sea of Istar. I am Ray. He hesitated, swallowed the suddenly bitter taste in his mouth, then said through clenched teeth, 
I am Fistendantilus, master of past and of present, and I command you to obey me. The orb's light dimmed. Raceland felt the hands holding his own tremble and start to slip away. Anger and fear shot through him, but he suppressed these emotions instantly and kept his clasp firmly upon the hands. The trembling ceased. The hands relaxed. We obey, Master. Raceland dared not breathe a sigh of relief. Very well, he said, keeping his voice stern, a parent speaking to a chastened child. But what a dangerous child, he thought. Coldly, he continued, I must contact my apprentice in the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus. Heed my command. Carry my voice through the ethers of time. Bring my words to Dalimar. Speak the words, Master. He shall hear them as he hears the beating of his own heart, and so shall you hear his response. Raceland nodded. Chapter 2 Dalimar shut the spellbook, clenching his fist in frustration. He was certain he was doing everything right, pronouncing the words with the proper inflection, repeating the chant the prescribed number of times. The components were those called for. He had seen Raceland cast this spell a hundred times, yet he could not do it. Putting his head wearily in his hands, he closed his eyes and brought memories of his shallify to mind. Hearing Raceland's soft voice, trying to remember the exact tone and rhythm, trying to think of anything he might be doing wrong. It didn't help. Everything seemed the same. Well, thought Dalimar with a tired sigh, I must simply wait until he returns. Standing up, the dark elf spoke a word of magic, and the continual light spell he had cast upon a crystal globe standing on the desk of Raceland's library winked out. No fire burned in the grate. The late spring night in Palanthus was warm and fine. Dalimar had even dared open the window a crack. Raceland's health at the best of times was fragile. He abhorred fresh air, preferring to sit in his study wrapped in warmth and the smells of roses and spice and decay. Ordinarily, Dalimar did not mind. But there were times, particularly in the spring, when his elven soul longed for the woodland home he had left forever. Standing by the window, smelling the perfume of renewed life that not even the horrors of the Shuiken Grove could keep from reaching the tower, Dalimar let himself think, just for a moment, of Sylvanesti. A dark elf, one who is cast from the light. Such was Dalimar to his people. When they'd caught him wearing the black robes that no elf could even look upon without flinching, practicing arcane arts forbidden to one of his low rank and station, the elven lords had bound Dalimar hand and foot, gagged his mouth, and blindfolded his eyes. Then he had been thrown in a cart and driven to the borders of his land. Deprived of his sight, Dalimar's last memories of Sylvanesti were the smells of aspen trees, blooming flowers, rich loam. It had been spring then, too, he recalled. Would he go back if he could? Would he give up this to return? Did he feel any sorrow? Regret. Without conscious volition, Dalimar's hand went to his breast. Beneath the black robes, he could feel the wounds in his chest. Though it had been a week since Raceland's hand had touched him, burning five holes into his flesh, the wounds had not healed. Nor would they ever heal, Dalimar knew with bitter certainty. Always, 
the rest of his life he would feel their pain. Whenever he stood naked, he would see them, festering scabs that no skin would cover. Such was the penalty he had paid for his treachery against his Shalifi. As he had told the great Parsalian, head of the order, master of the Tower of High Sorcery at Weyrath, and Dalimar's master too, of a sort, since the dark elf mage had, in reality, been a spy for the order of mages who feared and distrusted Raceland as they had feared no mortal in their history. It was no more than I deserved. Would he leave this dangerous place? Go back home? Go back to Sylvanesti? Dalimar stared out the window with a grim, twisted smile, reminiscent of Raceland's, the Shalifi. Almost unwillingly, Dalimar's gaze went from the peaceful, starlit night sky back indoors to the rows and rows of night-blue-bound spellbooks that lined the walls of the library. In his memory, he saw the wonderful, awful, beautiful, dreadful sights he had been privileged to witness as Raceland's apprentice. He felt the stirrings of power within his soul, a pleasure that outweighed the pain. No, he would never return, never leave. Dalimar's musings were cut short by the sound of a silver bell. It rang only once, with a sweet low sound. But to those living, and dead, within the tower, it had the effect of a shattering gong splitting the air. Someone was attempting to enter. Someone had won through the perilous Shoiken Grove and was at the gates of the tower itself. His mind having already conjured up memories of Parsalian, Dalimar had suddenly unwelcome visions of the powerful white-robed wizard standing on his doorstep. He could also hear in his mind what he had told the council only nights earlier. If any of you came and tried to enter the tower while he was gone, I would kill you. On the words of a spell, Dalimar disappeared from the library to reappear within the drawing of a breath at the tower entrance. But it was not a conclave of flashing-eyed wizards he faced. It was a figure dressed in blue dragon-scale armor, wearing the hideous, horn mask of the dragon high lord. In its gloved hand, the figure held a black jewel, a night jewel, Dalimar saw. And behind the figure he could sense, though he could not see, the presence of a being of awesome power, a death knight. The dragon high lord was using the jewel to hold at bay several of the tower's guardians. Their pale visages could be seen in the dark light of the night jewel, thirsting for her living blood. Though Dalimar could not see the High Lord's face beneath the helm, he could feel the heat of her anger. Lord Kitiara, Dalimar said gravely, bowing, forgive this rude welcome. If you had but let us know you were coming. Yanking off the helm, Kitiara glared at Dalimar with cold brown eyes that reminded the apprentice forcibly of her kinship to the Shalifi. You would have had an even more interesting reception planned for me, no doubt, she snarled with an angry toss of her dark curly hair. I come and go where I please, especially to pay a visit to my brother. Her voice literally shook with rage. I made my way through those God-cursed trees of yours out there. Then I'm attacked at his front door? Her hands drew her sword. She took a step forward. By the gods, I should teach you a lesson, elven slime. I repeat my apologies. Dalimar said calmly, but there was a glint in his slanted eyes that made Kit hesitate at her reckless act. Like most warriors, Kitiara tended to regard magic users as weaklings who spent time reading books that could be put to better use wielding cold steel. Oh, they could produce some flashy results, no doubt, but when put to the test, 
she would much rather rely on her sword and her skill than weird words and bat dung. Thus she pictured Raceland, her half brother, in her mind, and this was how she pictured his apprentice, with the added mark against Dalimar that he was only an elf, a race noted for its weakness. But Kitiara was, in another respect, different from most warriors. The main reason she had outlived all who opposed her. She was skilled at assessing her opponents. One look at Dalimar's cool eyes and composed stature, in the face of her anger, and Kitiara wondered if she might not have encountered a foe worthy of her. She didn't understand him, not yet, not by any means. But she saw and recognized the danger in this man, and, even as she made a note to be wary of it and to use it if possible, she found herself attracted to it. The fact that it went with such handsome features—he didn't look at all elvish now that she thought about it—and such a strong, muscular body, whose frame admirably filled out the black robes, made it suddenly occur to her that she might accomplish more by being friendly than intimidating. Certainly, she thought, her eyes lingering on the elf's chest, where the black robes had parted slightly, and she could see bronze skin beneath. It might be much more entertaining. Thrusting her sword back into its sheath, Kitiara continued her step forward. Only now, the light that had flashed on her blade flashed in her eyes. Forgive me, Dalimar. That's your name, isn't it? Her scowl melted into the crooked, charming smile that had won so many. That damned grove unnerves me. You are right. I should have notified my brother I was coming, but I acted on impulse. She stood close to Dalimar now, very close. Looking up into his face, hidden as it was by the shadows of his hood, she added, "I often act on impulse." With a gesture, Dalimar dismissed the guardians. Then the young elf regarded the woman before him with a smile of charm that rivaled her own. Seeing his smile, Kitiara held out a gloved hand. "Forgiven?" Dalimar's smile deepened, but he only said, "Remove your glove, Lord." Kitiara started, and for an instant, the brown eyes dilated dangerously. But Dalimar continued to smile at her. Shrugging, Kitiara jerked one by one at the fingers of the leather glove bearing her hand. "There," she said. Her voice tinged with scorn. "You see that I hold no concealed weapon." "Oh, I already knew that," Dalimar replied. Now taking the hand in his own, his eyes still on hers, the dark elf drew her hand up to his lips and kissed it lingeringly. Would you have had me deny myself this pleasure? His lips were warm, his hands strong, and Kitiara felt the blood surge through her body at his touch. But she saw in his eyes that he knew her game, and she saw too that it was one he played himself. Her respect rose, as did her guard. Truly a foe worthy of her attention, her undivided attention. Slipping her hand from his grasp, Kitiara put it behind her back with a playful female gesture that contrasted oddly with her armor and her manlike warrior stance. It was a gesture designed to attract and confuse, and she saw from the elf's slightly flushed features that it had succeeded. Perhaps I have concealed weapons beneath my armor. You should search for some time. She said with a mocking grin. On the contrary, Dalimar returned, folding his hands in his black robes. Your weapons seem to me to be in plain sight. Were I to search you, Lord, I would seek out that which the armor guards, and which, though many men have penetrated, none has yet touched. 
The elven eyes laughed. Kitiara caught her breath, tantalized by his words, remembering still the feel of those warm lips upon her skin. She took another step forward, tilting her face to the man's. Coolly, without seeming aware of his action, Dalimar made a graceful move to one side, slightly turning away from Kitiara. Expecting to be caught up in the man's arms, Kit was instead thrown off balance. Awkwardly, she stumbled. Recovering her balance with feline skill, she whirled to face him, her face flushed with embarrassment and fury. Kitiara had killed men for less than mocking her like this. But she was disconcerted to see that he was, apparently, totally unaware of what he had done. Or was he? His face was carefully devoid of all expression. He was talking about her brother. No, he had done that on purpose. He would pay. Kit knew her opponent now, conceded his skill. Characteristically, she did not waste time berating herself for her mistake. She had left herself open. She had taken a wound. Now she was prepared. I deeply regret that the Shalify is not here, Dalimar was saying. I am certain that your brother will be sorry to learn he has missed you. Not here? Kit demanded. Her attention caught instantly. Why, where is he? Where would he go? I am certain he told you, Dalimar said with feigned surprise. He has gone back to the past to seek the wisdom of Fistandantilus, and from thence to discover the portal through which he will... You mean he went anyway? Without the cleric? Suddenly, Kit remembered that no one was supposed to have known that she had sent Lord Soth to kill Chrysania in order to stop her brother's insane notion of challenging the Dark Queen. Biting her lip, she glanced behind her at the Death Knight. Dalimar followed her gaze, smiling, seeing every thought beneath that lovely curling hair. Oh, you knew about the attack on Lady Chrysania, he asked innocently. Kit scowled. You know damn well I knew about the attack, and so does my brother. He's not an idiot, if he is a fool. She spun around on her heels. You told me the woman was dead. She was, intoned Lord Soth, the Death Knight, materializing out of the shadows to stand before her, his orange eyes flaring in their invisible sockets. No human could survive my assault. The orange eyes turned their undying gaze to the Dark Elf, and your master could not have saved her. No, Dalimar agreed. But her master could, and did. Paladin cast a counterspell upon his cleric, drawing her soul to him, though he left the shell of her body behind. The Shalify's twin, your half-brother, Karamon Lord, Dalimar bowed to the infuriated Kitiara, took the woman to the Tower of High Sorcery, where the mages sent her back to the only cleric powerful enough to save her, the King Priest of Istar. Imbeciles, Kitiara snarled her face going livid. They sent her back to him? That's just what Raceland wanted. They knew that, Dalimar said softly. I told them. You told them? Kittyar gasped. There are matters I should explain to you, Dalimar said. This may take some time. At least let us be comfortable. Will you come to my chambers? He extended his arm. Kittyar hesitated, then laid her hand upon his forearm. Catching hold of her around her waist, he pulled her close to his body. Startled, Kitiara tried to pull away, but she didn't try very hard. Dalimar held her with a grip, both strong and firm. In order for the spell to transport us, he said coolly, 
You need to stand as close to me as possible. I'm quite capable of walking, Kit returned. I have little use for magic. But even as she spoke, her eyes looked into his. Her body pressed against his hard, well-muscled body with sensuous abandon. Very well, Dalimar shrugged and suddenly vanished. Looking around, startled, Kit heard his voice. Up the spiral staircase, Lord. After the 539th step, turn left. And so you see, Dalimar said, I have as great a stake in this as you do. I have been sent by the conclave of all three orders, the black, the white, and the red, to stop this appalling thing from happening. The two relaxed in the dark elf's private, sumptuously appointed quarters within the tower. The remains of an elegant repast had been whisked away by a graceful gesture of the elf's hand. Now they sat before a fire that had been lit more for the sake of its light than its warmth on this spring night. The dancing flames seemed more conducive to conversation. Then why didn't you stop him? Kit demanded angrily, setting her golden goblet down with a sharp clinking sound. What's so difficult about that? Making a gesture with her hand, she added words to suit her action. A knife in the back. Quick, simple. Giving Dalimar a look of scorn, she sneered. Or are you above that, you mages? Not above it, Dalimar said, regarding Kitiara intently. There are subtler means we of the black robes generally use to rid ourselves of our enemies. But not against him, Lord, not your brother. Dalimar shivered slightly and drank his wine with undue haste. Bah! Kitiara snorted. No, listen to me and understand, Kitiara. Dalimar said softly, You do not know your brother. You do not know him, and, what is worse, you do not fear him. That will lead to your doom. Fear him? That skinny, hacking wretch? You're not serious. Kitiara began, laughing. But her laughter died. She leaned forward. You are serious. I can see it in your eyes. Dalimar smiled grimly. I fear him as I fear nothing in this world including death. Reaching up, the dark elf grasped the seam of his black robes and ripped it open, revealing the wounds on his chest. Kitiara, mystified, looked at the wounds, then looked up at the dark elf's pale face. What weapon made those? I don't reckon... His hand, Dalimar said without emotion. The mark of his five fingers. This was his message to Parsalian and the Conclave when he commanded me to give them his regards. Kit had seen many terrible sights. Men disemboweled before her eyes, heads hacked off, torture sessions in the dungeons beneath the mountains known as the Lords of Doom. But seeing those oozing sores, and seeing in her mind her brother's slender fingers burning into the dark elf's flesh, she could not repress a shudder. Sinking back in her chair, Kit went over carefully in her mind everything Dalimar had told her, and she began to think that, perhaps, she had underestimated Raislin. Her face grave, she sipped her wine. And so he plans to enter the portal? She said to Dalimar slowly, trying to readjust her thinking along these new and startling lines. He will enter the portal with the cleric. He will find himself in the abyss. Then what? Surely he knows he cannot fight the Dark Queen on her own plane. Of course he knows, Dalimar said. He is strong, but there... She is stronger. And so he intends to lure her out, to force her to enter this world, 
Here, he believes he can destroy her. Mad, Kittyar whispered with barely enough breath to say the word. He is mad. She hastily set her wine goblet down, seeing the liquid slopping over her shaking hand. He has seen her in this plane when she was but a shadow, when she was blocked from entering completely. He cannot imagine what she would be like. Rising to her feet, Kit nervously crossed the soft carpet with its muted images of trees and flowers so beloved of the elves. Feeling suddenly chilled, she stood before the fire. Dalimar came to stand beside her, his black robes rustling. Even as Kit spoke, absorbed in her own thoughts and fears, she was conscious of the elf's warm body near hers. What do your mages think will happen? she asked abruptly. Who will win if he succeeds in this insane plan? Does he have a chance? Dalimar shrugged, and moving a step nearer, put his hands on Kitiera's slender neck. His fingers softly caressed her smooth skin. The sensation was delicious. Kitiara closed her eyes, drawing a deep, shivering breath. The mages do not know, Dalimar said softly, bending down to kiss Kitiara just below her ear. Stretching like a cat, she arched her body back against his. Here he would be in his element, Dalimar continued. The queen would be weakened, but she certainly would not be easily defeated. Some think the magical battle between the two could well destroy the world. Lifting her hand, Kitiara ran it through the elf's thick silken hair, drawing his eager lips to her throat. But does he have a chance? She persisted in a husky whisper. Dalimar paused, then drew back away from her, his hand still on her shoulders. He turned Kitiara around to face him. Looking into her eyes, he saw what she was thinking. Of course, there's always a chance. And what is it you will do if he succeeds in entering the portal? Kitiara's hands rested lightly on Dalimar's chest, where her half-brother had left his terrible mark. Her eyes, looking into the elf's, were luminous with passion that almost, but not quite, hid her calculating mind. I am to stop him from returning to this world, Dalimar said. I am to block the portal so that he cannot come through. His hand traced her crooked, curving lips. What will be your reward for so dangerous an assignment? She pressed closer, biting playfully at his fingertips. I will be master of the tower then, he answered and the next head of the Order of Black Robes. Why? I could help you, Kitiar said with a sigh, moving her fingers over Dalimar's chest and up over his shoulders, kneading her hands into his flesh like a cat's paws. Almost convulsively, Dalimar's hands tightened around her, drawing her nearer still. I could help, Kitiar repeated in a fierce whisper. You cannot fight him alone. Ah, my dear. Dalimar regarded her with a wry, sardonic smile. Who would you help, me or him? Now that, said Kitiara, slipping her hands beneath the tear in the fabric of the dark elf's black robes, would depend entirely upon who's winning. Dalimar's smile broadened. His lips brushed her chin. He whispered into her ear. Just so we understand each other, Lord. Oh, we understand each other. Kitiara said, sighing with pleasure. And now, enough of my brother. There is something I would ask, something I have long been curious about. 
What do magic users wear beneath their robes, Dark Elf? Very little, Dalimar murmured. And what do warrior women wear beneath their armor? Nothing. Kitiara was gone. Dalimar lay, half awake and half asleep, in his bed. Upon his pillow, he could still smell the fragrance of her hair, perfume and steel, a strange, intoxicating mixture, not unlike Kitiara herself. The dark elf stretched luxuriously, grinning. She would betray him, he had no doubt about that. And she knew he would destroy her in a second, if necessary, to succeed in his purpose. Neither found the knowledge bitter. Indeed, it added an odd spice to their lovemaking. Closing his eyes, letting sleep drift over him, Dalimar heard, through his open window, the sound of dragon wings spreading for flight. He imagined her, seated upon her blue dragon, the dragon helm glinting in the moonlight. Dalimar! The dark elf started and sat up. He was wide awake. Fear coursed through his body. Trembling at the sound of that familiar voice, he glanced about the room. Shalfi? He spoke hesitantly. There was no one there. Dalimar put his hand to his head. A dream, he muttered. Dalimar. The voice again, this time unmistakable. Dalimar looked around helplessly, his fear increasing. It was completely unlike Raceland to play games. The Archmage had cast a time travel spell. He had journeyed back in time. He had been gone a week and was not expected to return for many more. Yet Dalimar knew that voice as he knew the sound of his own heartbeat. Shalify, I hear you, Dalimar said, trying to keep his tone firm. Yet I cannot see you. Where? I am, as you surmise, back in time, apprentice. I speak to you through the dragon orb. I have an assignment for you. Listen to me carefully and follow my instructions exactly. Act at once. No time must be lost. Every second is precious. Closing his eyes that he might concentrate, Dalimar heard the voice clearly, yet he also heard sounds of laughter floating in through the open window. A festival of some sort, designed to honor spring, was beginning. Outside the gates of Old City, bonfires burned, Young people exchanged flowers in the light and kisses in the dark. The air was sweet with rejoicing and love and the smell of spring-blooming roses. But then Raceland began speaking, and Dalimar heeded none of these. He forgot Kitiara. He forgot love. He forgot springtime. Listening, questioning, understanding, his entire body tingled with the voice of his shalify. Chapter 3 Bertram padded softly through the halls of the great library of Palanthus. His aesthetic robes whispered about his ankles, their rustle keeping time to the tune Bertram hummed as he went along. He had been watching the spring festival from the windows of the great library, and now, as he returned to his work among the thousands and thousands of books and scrolls housed within the library, the melody of one of the songs lingered in his head. Tatum, tatum, Bertram sang in a thin, off-key voice, pitched low so as not to disturb the echoes of the vast, vaulted halls of the great library. The echoes were all that could be disturbed by Bertram's singing, the library itself being closed and locked for the night. Most of the other aesthetics, members of the order whose lives were spent in study and maintenance of the great library's collection of knowledge gathered from the beginning of Corinne's time, 
were either sleeping or absorbed in their own works. Tatum, tatum, my lover's eyes are the eyes of the doe. Tatum, tatum, and I and the hunter closing in. Bertram even indulged in an impromptu dance step. Tatum, tatum, I lift my bow and draw my arrow. Bertram skipped around a corner. I loose the shaft. It flies to my lover's heart, and oh, there! Who are you? Bertram's own heart leaped into his throat, very nearly strangling the aesthetic, as he was suddenly confronted with a tall, black-robed and hooded figure standing in the center of the dimly lit marble hall. The figure did not answer; it simply stared at him in silence. Gathering his wits and his courage and his robes about him, Bertram glared at the intruder. What business have you here? The library's closed. Yes, even to those of the black robes. The aesthetic frowned and waved a pudgy hand. Be gone. Return in the morning and use the front door like everyone else. Ah, but I am not everyone else," said the figure, and Bertram started, for he detected an elvish accent, though the words were salamic. As for doors, they are for those without the power to pass through walls. I have that power, as I have the power to do other things, many not so pleasant. Bertram shuddered. This smooth, cool, elven voice did not make idle threats. "You are a dark elf," Bertram said accusingly, his brain scrambling about, trying to think what to do. Should he raise the alarm, yell for help? Yes. The figure removed his black hood, so that the magical light imprisoned in the globes hanging from the ceiling, a gift from the magic users to Astinus, given during the Age of Dreams, fell upon his elven features. My name is Dalimar. I serve, Raislin Majir. Bertram gasped. He glanced about uneasily, expecting the black-robed archmage to leap out at him any moment. Dalimar smiled. The elven features were delicate, handsome, but there was a cold, single-minded purposefulness about them that chilled Bertram. All thoughts of calling for help vanished from the aesthetic's mind. What do you want? He stammered. It is what my master wants. Dalimar corrected. Do not be frightened. I am here seeking knowledge, nothing more. If you aid me, I will be gone as swiftly and silently as I have come. If I don't aid him, Bertrand shivered from head to toe. I will do what I can, Magus. The aesthetic faltered. But you should really talk to me. Came a voice out of the shadows. Bertrand nearly fainted in relief. Astinus, he babbled, pointing at Dalimar. This he—I didn't let him appeared. Raislin Majir. Yes, Bertram. Astinus said soothingly. Coming forward, he patted the aesthetic on the arm. I know everything that has transpired. Dalimar had not moved, nor even indicated that he was aware of Astinus's presence. Return to your studies, Bertram. Astinus continued, his deep baritone echoing through the quiet hallways. I will handle this matter. Yes, master. Bertram backed thankfully down the hall, his robes fluttering about him, his gaze on the dark elf, who had still neither moved nor spoken. Reaching the corner, Bertram vanished around it precipitously, and Astinus could hear, by the sounds of his flapping sandals, that he was running down the hallway. The head of the great library of Palanthus smiled, but only inwardly. To the eyes of the dark elf watching him, 
The man's calm, ageless face reflected no more emotion than the marble walls about them. Come this way, young mage, Astina said, turning abruptly and starting off down the hall with a quick, strong stride that belied his middle-aged appearance. Caught by surprise, Dalimar hesitated. Then, seeing he was being left behind, hurried to catch up. How do you know what I seek? The dark elf demanded. I am a chronicler of history, Astinus replied imperturbably. Even as we speak and walk, events transpire around us, and I am aware of them. I hear every word spoken. I see every deed committed, no matter how mundane, how good, how evil. Thus I have watched throughout history. As I was the first, so shall I be the last. Now, this way. Astinus made a sharp turn to his left. As he did so, he lifted a glowing globe of light from its stand and carried it with him in his hand. By the light, Dalimar could see long rows of books standing on wooden shelves. He could tell by their smooth leather binding that they were old, but they were in excellent condition. The aesthetics kept them dusted and, when necessary, rebound those particularly worn. Here is what you want, Astinus gestured. The Dwarf Gate Wars. Dalimar stared. All these? He gazed down a seemingly endless row of books, a feeling of despair slowly creeping over him. Yes, Astinus replied coldly, and the next row of books as well. I... I... Dalimar was completely at a loss. Surely, Raceland had not guessed the enormity of this task. Surely, he couldn't expect him to devour the contents of these hundreds of volumes within the specified time limit. Dalimar had never felt so powerless and helpless before in his life. Flushing angrily, he sensed Astinus's ice-like gaze upon him. Perhaps I can help, the historian said placidly. Reaching up, Without even reading the spine, Astinus removed one volume from the shelf. Opening it, he flipped quickly through the thin, brittle pages, his eyes scanning the row after row of neat, precisely written, black-inked letters. Ah, here it is. Drawing an ivory marker from a pocket of his robes, Astinus laid it across a page in the book, shut it carefully, then handed the book to Dalimar. Take this with you. Give him the information he seeks. And tell him this. The wind blows. The footsteps in the sand will be erased, but only after he has trod them. The historian bowed gravely to the dark elf, then walked past him, down the row of books to reach the corridor again. Once there, he stopped and turned to face Dalimar, who was standing, staring, clutching the book Astinus had thrust into his hands. Oh, young mage, you needn't come back here again. The book will return of its own accord when you are finished. I cannot have you frightening the aesthetics. Poor Bertram will have undoubtedly taken to his bed. Give your shallify my greetings. Astinus bowed again and disappeared into the shadows. Dalimar remained standing, pondering, listening to the historian's slow, firm step fade down the hallway. Shrugging, the dark elf spoke a word of magic and returned to the Tower of High Sorcery. What Astinus gave me is his commentary on the Dwarfgate War, Shalify. It is drawn from the ancient texts he wrote. Astinus would know what I need. Proceed. Yes, Shalify. This begins the marked passage. And the great archmage, Fistandantilus, used the dragon orb to call forward in time to his apprentice, 
instructing him to go to the great library at Palanthus and read in the books of history there to see if the result of his great undertaking would prove successful. Dalimar's voice faltered as he read this and eventually died completely as he reread this amazing statement. Continue, came his Shalify's voice, and though it resounded more in his mind than his ears, Dalimar did not miss the note of bitter anger. Hurriedly tearing his gaze from the paragraph, written hundreds of years previously, yet accurately reflecting the mission he had just undertaken, Dalimar continued. It is important here to note this. The chronicles, as they existed at that point in time, indicate. That part is underscored, Shalify. Dalimar interrupted himself. What part? At that point in time is underscored. Raceland did not reply, and Dalimar, momentarily losing his place, found it and hastened on. Indicated that the undertaking would have been successful. Fistan Dantilus, along with the cleric Danubus, should have been able, from all indications that the great archmage saw, to safely enter the portal. What might have happened in the abyss, of course, is unknown, since the actual historical events transpired differently. Thus believing firmly that his ultimate goal of entering the portal and challenging the Queen of Darkness was within his reach, Fistandantilus pursued the Dwarf Gate Wars with renewed vigor. Pax Tharkas fell to the armies of the Hill Dwarves and the Plainsmen. See Chronicles, Volume 126, Book 6, pages 589 through 700. Led by Fistandantilus' great general, Faragas, the former slave from northern Urgoth whom the wizard had purchased and trained as a gladiator in the games of Istar. The army of Fistandantilus drove back the forces of King Duncan, forcing the dwarves to retreat to the mountain fastness of Thorbarden. Little did Fistandantilus care for this war. It simply served to further his own ends. Finding the portal beneath the towering mountain fortress known as Zaman, he established his headquarters there, and began the final preparations that would give him the power to enter the Forbidden Gates, leaving his general to fight the war. What happened at this point is beyond even me to relate with accuracy, since the magical forces at work here were so powerful it obscured my vision. General Faragas was killed fighting the Dewar, the dark dwarves of Thorbarden. At his death, the army of Fistan Dantilus crumbled. The mountain dwarves swarmed out of Thorbarden toward the fortress of Zaman. During the fighting, aware that the battle was lost and that they had little time, Fistandantilus and Anubis hastened to the portal. Here the great wizard began to cast his spell. At the same instant, a gnome, being held prisoner by the dwarves of Thorbarden, activated a time-traveling device he had constructed in an effort to escape his confinement. Contrary to every recorded instance in the history of Kryn, this gnomish device actually worked. It worked quite well, in fact. I can only speculate from this point on, but it seems probable that the gnome's device interacted somehow with the delicate and powerful magical spells being woven by Fistandantilus. The result we know all too clearly. A blast occurred of such magnitude that the plains of Durgoth were utterly destroyed. Both armies were almost completely wiped out. The towering mountain fortress of Zaman shattered and fell in upon itself, creating the hill now called Skullcap. The unfortunate Danubus died in the blast. Fistandantilus should have died as well, but his magic was so great that he was able to cling to some portion of life, though his spirit 
was forced to exist upon another plane until it found the body of a young magic user named Raislin Magier. Enough. Yes, Shalify, Dalimar murmured. And then Raislin's voice was gone. Dalimar, sitting in the study, knew he was alone. Shivering violently, he was completely overawed and amazed by what he had just read. Seeking to make some meaning of it, the dark elf sat in the chair behind the desk, Raislin's desk, lost in thought until night shadows withdrew and gray dawn lit the sky. A tremor of excitement made Raislin's thin body quiver. His thoughts were confused. He would need a period of cool study and reflection to make absolutely certain of what he had discovered. One phrase shone with dazzling brilliance in his mind. The undertaking would have been successful. The undertaking would have been successful. Raceland sucked in his breath with a gasp, realizing at that point only that he had ceased breathing. His hands upon the dragon orb's cold surface shook. Exultation swept over him. He laughed, the strange, rare laugh of his, for the footsteps he saw in his dream led to a scaffold no longer, but to a door of platinum, decorated with the symbols of the five-headed dragon. At his command, it would open. He had simply to find and destroy this gnome. Raceland felt a sharp tug on his hands. Stop, he ordered, cursing himself for losing control. But the orb did not obey his command. Too late, Raceland realized he was being drawn inside. The hands had undergone a change. He saw as they pulled him closer and closer. They had been unrecognizable before, neither human nor elven, young nor old. But now they were the hands of a female, soft, supple, with smooth white skin and the grip of death. Sweating, fighting down the hot surge of panic that threatened to destroy him, Raceland summoned all his strength, both physical and mental, and fought the will behind the hands. Closer they drew him, nearer and nearer. He could see the face now, a woman's face, beautiful, dark-eyed, speaking words of seduction that his body reacted to with passion, even as his soul recoiled in loathing. Nearer and nearer. Desperately, Raceland struggled to pull away, to break the grip that seemed so gentle yet was stronger than the bonds of his life force. Deep he delved into his soul, searching the hidden parts, but for what he little knew. Some part of him, somewhere, existed that would save him. An image of a lovely white-robed cleric wearing the medallion of Paladin emerged. She shone in the darkness, and for a moment the hand's grasp loosened, but only for a moment. Raceland heard a woman's sultry laughter. The vision shattered. My brother! Raceland called through parched lips, and an image of Caramon came forward. Dressed in golden armor, his sword flashing in his hands, he stood in front of his twin, guarding him. But the warrior had not taken a step before he was cut down from behind. Nearer and nearer, Raceland's head slumped forward. He was rapidly losing strength and consciousness. And then, unbidden, from the innermost recesses of his soul came a lone figure. He was not robed in white. It carried no gleaming sword. It was small and grubby, and its face was streaked with tears. In its hand, it held only a dead, very dead, rat. Caramon arrived back in camp, just as the first rays of dawn were spreading through the sky. He had ridden all night and was stiff, tired, 
and unbelievably hungry. Fond thoughts of his breakfast and his bed had been comforting him for the last hour, and his face broke into a grin as the camp came into sight. He was about to put the spurs to his weary horse when, looking ahead into the camp itself, the big man reined in his horse and brought his escort to a halt with an upraised hand. "What's going on?" he asked in alarm, all thoughts of food vanishing. Garrick, riding up beside him, shook his head, mystified. Where there should have been lines of smoke rising from morning cooking fires, and the disgruntled snorts of men being roused from a night's sleep, the camp resembled a beehive after a bear's feast. No cooking fires were lit. People ran about in apparent aimlessness, or stood clustered together in groups that buzzed with excitement. Then someone caught sight of Karaman and let out a yell. The crowd came together and surged forward. Instantly, Garrick shouted, and within moments, he and his men had galloped up to form a protective shield of armor-clad bodies around their general. It was the first time Karaman had seen such a display of loyalty and affection from his men, and for a moment he was so overcome he could not speak. Then, gruffly clearing his throat, he ordered them aside. "It's not a mutiny," he growled, riding forward as his men reluctantly parted to let him pass. "Look, no one's armed." Half of them are women and children, but he grinned at them. Thanks for the thought. His gaze went particularly to the young knight Garrick, who flushed with pleasure even as he kept his hand on his sword hilt. By this time, the outer fringes of the crowd had reached Caramon. Hands grasped his bridle, startling his horse, who, thinking this was battle, pricked its ears dangerously, ready to lash out with its hooves as it had been trained. Stand back! Caramon roared. Barely holding the animal in check, stand back! Have you all gone mad? You look like just what you are—a bunch of farmers. Stand back, I say! Did your chickens all get loose? What's the meaning of this? Where are my officers? Here, sir, came a voice of one of the captains. Red-faced, embarrassed, and angry, the man shoved his way through the crowd. Chagrined at the reprimand from their commander, the men calmed down, and the shouting died to a few mutterings as a group of guards. Arriving with the captain, began to try to break up the mob. Begging the general's pardon for all this, sir, the captain said as Caramon dismounted and patted his horse's neck soothingly. The animal stood still under Caramon's touch, though its eyes rolled and its ears still twitched. The captain was an older man, not a knight, but a mercenary of thirty years' experience. His face was seamed with scars. He was missing part of his left hand from a slashing sword blow. And he walked with a pronounced limp. This morning, the scarred face was flushed with shame as he faced his young general's stern gaze. The scout sent word of your coming, sir, but afore I could get to you, this pack of wild dogs, he glowered at the retreating men, lit out for you like you was a bitch in heat. Begging the general's pardon, he muttered again, and meaning no disrespect. Caramon kept his face carefully composed. What's happened? He asked, leading his tired horse into camp at a walk. The captain did not answer right away, but cast a significant glare at Caramon's escort. Caramon understood. Go on ahead, men, he said, waving his hand. Garrick, see to my quarters. When he and the captain were alone, or as alone as possible in the crowded camp, where everyone was staring at them in eager curiosity, Caramon turned to question the man with a glance. The old mercenary said just two words. The wizard. Reaching Raceland's tent, Caramon saw with a sinking heart.
the ring of armed guards surrounding it, keeping back onlookers. There were audible sighs of relief at the sight of Karaman, and many remarks of, "General's here now. He'll take care of things." Much nodding of heads and some scattered applause. Encouraged by a few oaths from the captain, the crowd opened up an aisle for Karaman to walk through. The armed guard stepped aside as he passed, then quickly closed ranks again. Pushing and shoving, the crowd peered over the guards, straining to see. The captain, having refused to tell him what was going on, Karaman would not have been surprised to find anything from a dragon sitting atop his brother's tent to the whole thing surrounded by green and purple flame. Instead, he saw one young man standing guard and Lady Crescentia pacing in front of the closed tent flap. Karaman stared at the young man curiously, thinking he recognized him. Garrick's cousin, he said hesitantly, trying to remember the name. Michael, isn't it? Yes, General, the young knight said. Drawing himself up straight, he attempted a salute, but it was a feeble attempt. The young man's face was pale and haggard, his eyes red-rimmed. He was clearly about to drop from exhaustion, but he held his spear before him, grimly barring the way into the tent. Hearing Karaman's voice, Crescentia looked up. "Thank Paladin," she said fervently. One look at her pale face and sunken gray eyes, and Karaman shivered in the bright morning sunlight. "Get rid of them," he ordered the captain, who immediately began to issue orders to his men. Soon, with much swearing and grumbling, the crowd started to break up. Most figured the excitement was over now, anyway. Karaman, listen to me," Grishania laid her hand on his arm. "This," but Karaman shrugged off Grishania's hand, ignoring her attempts to speak. He started to push past Michael. The young knight raised his spear, blocking his path. "Out of my way!" Karaman ordered, startled. "I am sorry, sir," Michael said in firm tones, though his lips trembled. "But Fistan Dantalus told me no one was to pass." "You see." Said Crescentia in exasperation, as Caramon fell back a pace, staring at Michael in perplexed anger. I tried to tell you, if you'd only listened. It's been like this all night, and I know something dreadful's happened inside. But Raceland made him take an oath, by the code and the rules, or some such thing. Measure, Caramon muttered, shaking his head. The code and the measure. He frowned, thinking of Sturm. A code no knight will break on pain of death. But this is insane," Grisania cried. Her voice broke. She covered her face with her hand a moment. Caramon put his arm around her hesitantly, fearing a reprimand. But she leaned against him gratefully. "Oh, Caramon, I've been so frightened," she murmured. "It was awful. I woke out of a sound sleep, hearing Raceland screaming my name. I ran over here. There were flashes of light inside his tent. He was shrieking incoherent words. Then I heard him call your name." And then he began to moan in despair. I tried to get in, but she made a weak gesture toward Michael, who stood staring straight ahead. And then his voice began to, to fade. It was awful, as though he were being sucked away somehow. Then what happened? Crescentia paused. Then hesitantly, he, he said something else. I could barely hear it. The lights went out. There was a sharp crack, and everything was still. Horribly still, she closed her eyes, shuddering. What did he say? Could you understand? That's the strange part. Grisania raised her head, looking at him in confusion. It sounded like, "Boopoo." Boopoo, Caramon repeated in astonishment. Are you sure? She nodded. Why would he call out the name of a gully dwarf? Caramon demanded. 
I haven't any idea. Grisania sighed wearily, brushing her hair back out of her eyes. I've wondered the same thing. Except, wasn't that the gully dwarf who told Parsalian how kind Raceland had been to her? Caramon shook his head. He would worry about gully dwarves later. Now, his immediate problem was Michael. Vivid memories of Sturm came back to him. How many times had he seen that look on the knight's face? An oath by the code and the measure. Damn Raceland! Michael would stand at his post now until he dropped, and then, when he awoke to find he had failed, he'd kill himself. There had to be some way around this, around him. Caramon glanced at Grisania. She could use her clerical powers to spellbind the young man. Caramon shook his head. That would have the entire camp ready to burn her at the stake. Damn Raceland! Damn clerics! Damn the knights of Salamnia! And damn their code and their measure! Heaving a sigh, he walked up to Michael. The young man raised his spear threateningly, but Caramon only lifted his hands high to show they were empty. He cleared his throat, knowing what he wanted to say, yet uncertain how to begin. And then, as he thought about Sturm, suddenly he could see the knight's face once again, so clearly that he marvelled. But it was not as he had seen it in life: stern, noble, cold. And then Caramon knew. He was seeing Sturm's face in death. Marks of terrible suffering and pain had smoothed away the harsh lines of pride and inflexibility. There was compassion and understanding in the dark, haunted eyes, and it seemed to Caramon that the knight smiled on him sadly. For a moment, Caramon was so startled by this vision that he could say nothing, only stare. But the image vanished, leaving in its place only the face of a young knight, grim, frightened. Exhausted, determined. Michael, Caramon said, keeping his hands raised. I had a friend once, a knight of Salamnia. He—he's dead now. He died in a war far from here. When, but that doesn't matter. Stir, my friend was like you. He believed in the code and and the measure. He was ready to give his life for them. But in the end, he found out there was something more important than the code and the measure. Something that the code and the measure had forgotten. Michael's face hardened stubbornly. He gripped his spear tighter. Life itself, Caramon said softly. He saw a flicker in the knight's red-rimmed eyes, a flicker that was drowned by a shimmer of tears. Angrily, Michael blinked them away. The look of firm resolution returning, though it seemed to Caramon, it was now mingled with a look of desperation. Caramon caught hold of that desperation. Driving his words home as if they were the point of a sword seeking his enemy's heart. Life, Michael, that's all there is. That's all we have. Not just our lives, but the lives of everyone on this world. It's what the code and the measure were designed to protect. But somewhere along the line, that all got twisted around, and the code and the measure became more important than life. Slowly, still keeping his hands raised, he took a step toward the young man. I'm not asking you to leave your post for any treacherous reason, and you and I both know you're not leaving it from cowardice. Caramon shook his head. The gods know what you must have seen and heard tonight. I'm asking you to leave it out of compassion. My brother's inside there, maybe dying, maybe dead. When he made you swear that oath, he couldn't have foreseen this happening. I must go to him. Let me pass, Michael. There is nothing dishonorable in that. Michael stood stiffly, 
his eyes straight ahead, and then his face crumpled, his shoulders slumped, and the spear fell from his nerveless hand. Reaching out, Karaman caught the young man in his big arms and held him close. A shuddering sob tore through the young man's body. Karaman patted his shoulder awkwardly. Here, one of you. He looked around. Find Garrick. Ah, there you are, he said in relief as the young knight came running over. Take your cousin back to the fire. Get some hot food inside him. Then see that he sleeps. You there, he motioned to another guard. Take over here. As Garrick led his cousin away, Grisania started to enter the tent, but Caramon stopped her. Better let me go first, lady, he said. Expecting an argument, he was surprised to see her meekly step aside. Caramon had his hand on the tent flap when he felt her hand upon his arm. Startled, he turned. You are as wise as Elliston, Caramon, she said, regarding him intently. I could have said those words to the young man. Why didn't I? Caramon flushed. I, I just understood him, that's all, he muttered. I didn't want to understand him. Chrysania, her face pale, bit her lip. I just wanted him to obey me. Look, lady, Caramon said grimly. You can do your soul-searching later. Right now I need your help. Yes, of course. The firm, self-confident look returned to Chrysania's face. Without hesitation, she followed Caramon into Raceland's tent. Mindful of the guard outside and any other curious eyes, Caramon shut the tent flap quickly. It was dark and still inside, so dark that at first neither could make out anything in the shadows. Standing near the entrance, waiting until their eyes grew accustomed to the dimness, Grisania clutched at Caramon suddenly. I can hear him breathing, she said in relief. Caramon nodded and moved forward slowly. The brightening day was driving night from the tent, and he could see more clearly with each step he took. There, he said. He hurriedly kicked aside a camp stool that blocked his way. Raced, he called softly as he knelt down. The archmage was lying on the floor. His face was ashen, his thin lips blue. His breathing was shallow and irregular, but he was breathing. Lifting his twin carefully, Caramon carried him to his bed. In the dim light, he could see a faint smile on Raceland's lips, as though he were lost in a pleasant dream. I think he's just sleeping now, Caramon said in a mystified voice to Chrysania, who was covering Raceland with a blanket. But something's happened, that's obvious. He looked around the tent in the brightening light. I wonder... Name of the gods! Grisenia looked up, glancing over her shoulder. The poles of the tent were scorched and blackened. The material itself was charred, and in some places appeared to have melted. It looked as though it had been swept by fire. Yet, incongruously, it remained standing and did not appear to have been seriously damaged. It was the object on the table, however, that had brought the exclamation from Caramon. The dragon orb, he whispered in awe. Made by the mages of all three robes long ago, filled with the essence of good, evil, and neutral dragons, powerful enough to span the banks of time, the crystal orb still stood upon the table, resting on the silver stand Raceland had made for it. Once it had been an object of magical, enchanting light. Now it was a thing of darkness, lifeless, a crack running down its center. Now it's broken. Caramon said in a quiet voice. 
Chapter 4 The army of Fistandantilus sailed across the Straits of Chalcy in a ramshackle fleet made up of many fishing boats, rowboats, crude rafts, and gaudily decorated pleasure boats. Though the distance was not great, it took over a week to get the people, the animals, and the supplies transported. By the time Caramon was ready to make the crossing, the army had grown to such an extent that there were not enough boats to ferry everyone across at once. Many craft had to make several trips back and forth. The largest boats were used to carry livestock. Converted into floating barns, they had stalls for the horses and the scrawny cattle, and pens for the pigs. Things went smoothly, for the most part, though Caramon got only about three hours of sleep each night, so busy was he with the problems that everyone was sure only he could solve. Everything from seasick cattle to a chestload of swords that was accidentally dropped overboard and had to be retrieved. Then, just when the end was in sight and nearly everyone was across, a storm came up. Whipping the seas to froth, it wrecked two boats that slipped from their moorings and prevented anyone from crossing for two days. But eventually, everyone made it in relatively good shape, with only a few cases of seasickness, one child tumbling overboard, rescued, and a horse that broke its leg, kicking down its stall in a panic, killed and butchered. Upon landing on the shores of Abanasinia, the army was met by the chief of the plainsmen, the tribes of barbarians inhabiting the northern plains of Abanasinia, who were eager to gain the fabled gold of Thorbarden, and also by representatives from the hill dwarves. When he met with the representative of the hill dwarves, Caramon experienced a profound shock that unnerved him for days. Rhaegar Fireforge and Party, announced Garrick from the entrance to the tent. Standing aside, the knight allowed a group of three dwarves to enter. That name ringing in his ears, Caramon stared at the first dwarf in disbelief. Raceland's thin fingers closed painfully over his arm. Not a word, breathed the archmage. But he, he looks, and the name, Caramon stammered in a low voice. Of course, Raceland said matter-of-factly. This is Flint's grandfather. Flint's grandfather? Flint Fireforge, his old friend, the old dwarf who had died in Tannis's arms at God's home, the old dwarf, so gruff and irascible, yet so tender-hearted, the dwarf who had seemed ancient to Caramon. He had not even been born yet. This was his grandfather. Suddenly the full scope of where he was and what he was doing struck Caramon a physical blow. Before this, he might have been adventuring in his own time. He knew then that he hadn't really been taking any of this seriously. Even Raceland sending him home had seemed as simple as the archmage putting him on a boat and bidding him farewell. Talk of altering time he'd put out of his mind. It confused him, seeming to go round in a closed, endless circle. Caramon felt hot, then cold. Flint hadn't been born yet. Tannis didn't exist. Tika didn't exist. He himself didn't exist. No, it was too implausible. It couldn't be.